0: Um, But thank you for your patience and understanding. Well, let's look to God's word as we continue in our study of James chapter 1. That's an interesting phrase. Let's look to God's word. For the most part, that's why we're here, to look to God's word. Because we understand that the word of God is everything. It's everything for the believer. Now think about it. You worship God because of who he is. But everything you know about God is from the Word. Anything that you pursue for God, you know you are to pursue it because it is in His Word. And anything you understand about yourself rightly before the eyes of your Creator is from the Word. Everything that we do, everything that we know about God, everything we know about ourselves in light of God is from the Bible. I've shared this with you before, that's why... In most seminaries, you will study, when you study many years of theology, you will study the theology of the Bible, bibliology, before you study theology proper, which is the character of God. Because you need to establish that the Word is true before you can believe anything that is in it. And so we read the Word, we study the Word, we memorize the Word, we quote the Word, we listen to the preaching of God's Word. But sometimes we hear the word preached, we listen to a podcast, we read it for ourselves, and we refuse it. Maybe not the whole thing, but a little piece of doctrine that you just don't agree with. A little command that you say, no, that's not for today, that's outdated. Sometimes we even get angry. We don't like what we hear. So we choose to ignore it, even though as believers we know we need to obey it. Maybe we don't feel comfortable rejecting the word itself, and so we blame the preacher, the author, the pastor. Other times we hear the word and we simply don't think we need to believe it, at least not in a way that dictates our behavior. We make excuses. Well, I know I'm supposed to do that, but hey, nobody's perfect. God is forgiven. Don't judge me. That's not my personality. Ultimately, if you are a true believer, you know these behaviors, this type of thinking is wrong. You know that you need to accept not just the concept of Scripture, but every single word of it. But sometimes you just can't. Whether it's too hard, too confusing, too inconvenient, or too selfless. We don't want to do it, but we know we should. Ultimately, it all comes down to whether, you, whether or not you properly receive the Word of God as the Word of God from God. And there's a solution to the hesitation we have to embracing all of God's truth And this morning I want to share with you the recipe, the recipe for proper reception of the Word, the Scriptures, the Bible. And we find this in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. Would you turn with me to James chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, as we look at the recipe for the proper reception of God's Word. James writes, This you know, my beloved brethren, But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Three points this morning, three ingredients for the proper reception of God's word. Three ingredients for the proper reception of God's word, all of them work together like any recipe. You need them all for the recipe to work. The first ingredient for the proper reception of God's word is self-control. Self-control. Let me read for you again verses 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James begins by reminding us what we saw last week in verses 17 and 18 by saying, you know this, this is nothing new. You know by way of review that God is good. You know that all good things come from him and you know that with him there is no variation. There is no shifting shadow. He is consistent in his character. He is never changing, which includes a never-changing characteristic of his being the giver of all good things. And as believers, we know this. We get this. But, James says, but what? Quite simply, but you need to respond to that. Don't just know it, respond to that. And as we've already seen, James is very practical. The response to God's goodness is no different. Basically, what he's about to tell us is this. If God is good, then you'd better listen to his word and you'd better obey it. And in order to listen properly, we have to have self control. And here in these two verses, we see three aspects, really just in verse 19, three aspects or areas in which we need to have self control to set up the right heart attitude, the right mindset to receive God's word. Quick to hear slow to speak, and slow to anger. And as we go through this, we look at these principles, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and we understand that we are called to have these attributes when interacting with other people, whether Christians or the unbelieving world around us. That's good, that's true. We need to apply it in those areas. But this specific context is talking about the Word of God. Be quick to hear, In regard to the word of God. Be slow to speak and slow to anger in receiving or listening to or reading the word of God. So let's talk about this first one, quick to hear. Again, the context is hearing God through his word. So quick to hear is about listening to the word of truth, as James calls the Bible in verse 18. And the idea of being quick to hear is about listening carefully to God's word. And understand when I say listen, it may not necessarily be something audible that you hear. It could be reading silently in your own mind. It's all about listening, hearing God speak. And listening carefully means God's word itself, but also anything that presents the word of God. A book, a sermon, a brother in Christ, frankly, It can be so many other things, especially in our modern day podcasts, videos, Christian books, audio books, whatever it may be. You get this. Anytime that the word of God is spoken, read, preached, explained, taught, you need to be quick to hear. And we see how this takes self-control. This is just as much a reminder that we need to be in God's word. As much as it is a reminder that whenever we do listen, whenever we are in God's Word, we need to listen carefully. The reason we do this is to make sure that we get the message. When you don't listen carefully, you may miss important truths that God has for you. We listen carefully when a police officer is speaking regarding our situation. We may ignore the flight attendant's safety presentation at the beginning of the flight because we've heard it before so many times. But I think if that intercom went on while you saw fire on the wing, you'd listen carefully. Yeah, something about lights and a door. No, you want every word. Which mask, who, where, what exit, right? Right? And sometimes we get used to the word and say, I know what it is. I get it. I know the principles. I don't remember this verse, but I know where he's going. Listen carefully. When you don't listen carefully, you can misinterpret deliberately to justify your behavior or even in anger in order to feed your desire to criticize. One of the reasons I am a proponent and practitioner of what I call expository preaching What we call expository preaching is because that I believe when it comes to explaining and understanding and listening to the word of God, slower is better than faster because slower is deeper than faster. And if God has said it, we better get it right. And so what better way to get it right than to interpret every word, to go to the original languages, to go slowly verse by verse? So that's how I study, that's how I preach verse by verse to make sure that I get it all and hopefully you get it all and that same principle needs to apply to how we hear the word, how you read the word in your quiet times, how you listen to the word on your commute to work. Not necessarily slowly in a literal sense, but attentively, carefully. Sometimes that may mean slowly. And this is why even in the midst of his own teachings, Jesus tells his followers in Luke 8, and I quote, take care how you listen. Don't just listen, listen carefully. And although we understand quick to hear is a figure of speech in that we can't literally listen quickly, what does that even mean? The words do remind us that we need to be ready. We need to be ready to be attentive So that the moment someone says something, the moment we hear something as we're tuning through the different stations on the radio, the moment the pastor starts speaking, we are ready, quick to hear, suddenly, ready at any moment. This can be calming our hearts and praying before we do our quiet times. It can be being settled in our seats before the worship service begins. Whatever you need to do. So that when it comes, you are fully attentive and you don't miss a thing. It can be very practical. Like just waiting until you're on the freeway to turn on that sermon or the book on tape so that you're not distracted by the stoplights or the pedestrians. It may be silencing your phone or turning off your computer at home during your times with the Lord. It may be be going to bed earlier on Saturday night to be refreshed for church, putting the, clothes, the kids' clothes out on Saturday evening so you're not stressed and rushing to figure out how to get the kids to church on time. Whatever it takes to get you to the place where you will be ready, attentive, careful, quick to hear. There's another aspect of self-control. We're still in the first point here. Another aspect of self-control as it relates to properly receiving God's Word in addition to being quick to hear, we need to be slow to speak. This means waiting before you begin speaking. This is more than just controlling your tongue. This is more than just being patient. This is more than just, I have something in my mouth. I can't speak right now. It's the idea of waiting before speaking so that you can hear everything. And when the hearing is done, you still don't speak. You digest You meditate and then you respond. Digest and meditate on what you've just heard or read. Not meditating on how you want to counter or argue, ignore, or reject. This is a figure of speech, again, that can refer to literal, audible speaking, but also speaks of the avoidance of letting your mind wander or run in a way that keeps you from paying attention or being quick to hear. We all know that we can't listen well or understand when we are talking over people, but also when we are quiet and we're thinking about something else. And in this context, thinking about how we want to respond to the word while we're still listening or reading the word. The wisest man who ever lived has a lot to say about this. Would you turn with me to Proverbs? Proverbs. Although we do not attest all of Proverbs to King Solomon, the verses I'm going to read for you this morning are his. Proverbs 13, chapter 3. And you are probably most familiar, mostly familiar, with how much the Proverbs speaks about talking and how speaking wisely is important. Proverbs 13:3 says... The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Turn to chapter 17, verses 27 and 28. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28. He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Then Proverbs 29.20, towards the end of Proverbs. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty or quick in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. All of these Proverbs are referring to being quick to speak in general and in all life situations, mostly in speaking to other people. How much more true are they when this attitude is directed towards God and His Word? And again, when we read these Proverbs, there is no way this is just about an external control of the tongue. It is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of controlling the heart and how you perceive and understand and accept the Word of God, how you apply it, how you digest it, how you respond to it. We've probably all been in a situation where we have a serious conversation with someone, and while the other person is speaking, we are already formulating our response. It stops us from fully listening and hearing to what they're saying. Sometimes it can be because of things you even wanted to say before the conversation began. Often because you want to say something based on assumptions rather than coming to the conversation to ask why. Why did you do that? Why did you say that? We come ready to fight, ready to debate. When interacting with another person at best, that is rude. When interacting with God's word, that is dangerous. It can be sacrilegious. The equivalent to coming to the word as you would to a conversation already said in what you want to say or formulating response before knowing what you're responding to can be for a number of reasons, such as how you were previously taught at your last church, what your parents believe, what you thought the Word said, what you want the Word to say to indulge your own desires and sins. We come with preconceived notions. We come ready to say, oh, I know that passage. I know what he wants for me. And so we don't listen we're quick to speak we're quick to respond before listening hearing the exegesis hearing the context reading the context we need to know god's word but we have to accept it and read it and understand it and be quiet and listen stop speaking stop addressing stop responding let god speak through his word We have established how wrong and dangerous it is to approach God's word being slow to hear and quick to speak, which is why when we engage in those things, it either comes from a place of anger or can easily result in anger. And James addresses this with our third aspect of self-control, be slow to anger. And because he elaborates on it in verse 20, we understand that what ties all of this together is anger. The problem of anger, dealing with anger, the theme of self-control here is all about the temper. Hold your temper. Or more accurately, controlling your anger will allow you to control your tongue and help you to listen. Ultimately, it's a matter of wanting to be right, wanting to be heard, wanting to put yourself and your thoughts above others and even God's word. In other words, when we are angry or don't like something we have heard or read, we will not listen carefully, nor will we hold our tongue. We just want to fight. And When it comes to the Word of God, what James is calling us to do here is to submit. Submit. In many contexts, in a practical application of these truths, submission is the opposite of anger. You want to repent of your anger and turn 180 degrees. What's over here on the other side? Submission and humility as we'll see in a bit. Submit to the word of God. Because of what James is saying here, it seems that the anger that he's talking about would actually be directed to God or something that you have seen in the Bible that you don't like, which is the same thing as directing your anger to God because it's His Word. and We can see how all of these three things work together. If you're angry, you don't want to listen. You will want to voice your anger, you will want to voice your opinion in thought or words, but if you listen, if you really listen to God's Word, you won't get angry. If you don't succumb to the temptation of speaking too quickly, you might actually give your heart a chance to repent of that anger, to listen, to hear not just the commands that you don't like, not just the commands that make you uncomfortable, but the broader context of God saying, I love you. Don't you get it? This is for your good. This is to protect you. We need to listen. We have to remember that what we're talking about is the Word of God. And I think this is why we get... We get angry at people who want to bring us the truth, whether from the pulpit or in our own homes in conversation, because as believers, we know better than to say, God, I don't like that. But you know what? As a believer, that might be one of the best prayers you can pray. Because I can't change your heart. He can't change your heart. God can. And if there's something you don't like, bring it to the Lord. With submission, with patience, with humility and reverence. But bring it to the Lord. He'll help you with that. Because when we let our anger get out of control, we start thinking, well, God's against us, not for us. God doesn't like me. He wants me to be miserable. He wants me to be lonely. He wants me to be discouraged. And then you just start attacking the people of God too. Attacking the preachers of his word, attacking whatever it is. But you need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't like this. Help me to accept it with joy. There's a good warning in Ecclesiastes two. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth, therefore let your words be few. You want to yell at me? Fine. You want to yell at your small group leader? Fine. You want to attack the people in the church? Go ahead. But don't you dare do that to God. Don't you dare do that to my God, your God. In fact, you should be terrified to do so. James goes on in verse 20 to give us a reason to not get angry, especially in response to Scripture. Back in James 1, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Verse 20, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger is sin. It is not holy. It is not righteous. When James says the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, Righteousness here is referring not to the righteous character of God, but the righteous behavior He requires of us because of His character. You could say that which is righteous in His eyes. That's why the ESV says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. The NIV says man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So we're talking about righteousness, holy living in our lives. Anger doesn't achieve that. In other words, our anger does not produce behavior that is pleasing to God. I mean, think about it. This goes in line with everything that we're seeing. Anger is selfish. Anger is its own sin. And so when when we know someone who's struggling with anger in the moment or just an angry person, we say, that guy's sin, that guy's problem is his anger. But ultimately, anger is an offshoot of pride, because when do you get angry? When you are uncomfortable, when you don't like something, when someone hurts you, when you don't get what you want. Anger is selfishness. And that's why we talk about submission to God's word is the opposite of anger towards it. Anger does not align with what God has called us to be or the life that he has saved us for. And circling back the character of God must be reflected in our control over our minds and our hearts and our tongues. In other words, our listening, our speaking, and our anger. I say, how do I do this? We know that everything is connected in life, in the Christian life especially, especially. And since the Scriptures give us everything pertaining to life and godliness, above all else, we must remove everything in our lives that either keeps us from going to the Word or keeps us from aligning with the Word. So if you have a problem with listening, speaking, or anger, dig deeper. Which leads us to our second ingredient for the proper reception of God's Word. Holiness. Holiness. Verse 21 says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Let's stop there. James explains the need for holiness with a metaphor of taking clothing off, putting aside. A phrase he uses there is one word in the Greek. It means to put off or strip off. The same word and metaphor are used elsewhere in the New Testament of putting aside sins, wickedness, as well as the old self. Filthiness is a word that was used to refer to dirty clothing or moral defilement. So in keeping with the metaphor, filthiness is a dirty garment that needs to be taken off and disposed of or cleaned, removed from you and placed somewhere else. In us, that would be any sort of impurity, any sort of disobedience, any sort of sin. And we also, we are also to remove anything that he says here, remains of wickedness. The NAS is not wholly accurate here. The word remains in the Greek is overabundance, excess, overflowing. The ESV says rampant wickedness. The NIV says evil that is so prevalent. And the idea is any sort of sin, any sort of immorality, in any sort of moral corruption. Sin that is intentional, sin that is unintentional, sin that is deliberate. So not an abstract idea, but actual specific sins in your heart and in your actions. An overabundance of those things. But I want you to think about that concept. An overabundance of sin. An excess or overabundant wickedness. As the redeemed of Jesus Christ... Any sin is excessive. Any sin is too much. Don't be fooled into thinking James is just talking about extreme and flagrant sins that even the world would frown upon. This is any sin that remains in your life. When you have a piece of dirty clothing, it's clean in the morning, and I don't mean dirty like you've worn it a couple times it still looks fine. You've spilled some food on it, spilled coffee. Maybe you splash some mud on it or something else if you work with your hands. What do you do? You go home. Sometimes you can't wait to go home cuz you're embarrassed walking through the last few hours of work with that big stain on your shirt. You go home, you strip it off and you throw it in the wash. It is completely separate and distanced from you. And that is exactly what James is saying here. He is calling for a total moral reformation. And this goes back to the reality that everything we know about God and how to honor Him comes from the Scriptures. So whenever there is anything that violates the Scriptures in our lives, even in a small way, then it's going to cloud our view of the Scriptures and subsequently distance ourselves from it. You've seen this in your own lives or perhaps other people. The more engulfed they get in their sin, the less they want the cure. They distance themselves from God's Word. They distance themselves from God's people. They distance themselves from God. Because sin does that. Sin clouds your judgment. Sin clouds the light with which you see God's Word. And things get fuzzy. And you want less and less of it. And if you are struggling with accepting the Word in its entirety, then the first thing you need to do is take hold of what parts you are still convicted by. Start there. What remains of holiness and obedience in your life. And look at everything else and start peeling away the dirty clothing. Look at your garments, look at your heart, look at your behavior to see if there's any filth and strip them off. Most of you work in an office setting. Most of you work from home still. But sometimes you have an especially hard day at work. For whatever reason, you're running to your car back and forth all over the building, and you start smelling something. You go home away from all the smells of the office, from the fumes on the 101, and you go home, and you're like, that was me. There's a stench here. And you're trying to figure out where it's coming from. Guys will sniff their armpits. Okay, I know you ladies do it too. You start looking. You look in the mirror. Honey, come smell me. Where is this coming from? Right? Is it your blouse? Is it your jeans? Is it your skirt? Is it your shoes? What is it? And when you find it, what do you do? All right, glad I found it. Off to dinner. No, you take it off. You change. Maybe you spray a little extra cleaner on there before you throw it in the washing machine. What you don't do is fold it up neatly and put it back in your drawer with the rest of your clean clothes. You strip it off and you throw it away in the hamper. But if you don't examine and you don't pinpoint where that stench is coming from, then you will go back out and maybe even wear that same thing the next day. And as you keep doing that, pretty soon you get used to the smell and you don't notice it anymore. See, we'll wash our clothes that have big stains on the front because it's embarrassing and we're worried about what other people will think. The sins that make us look bad in front of other people, oh, we'll deal with those, if only externally. But are you digging deep to get and remove the clothes that are not visibly stained, but are filthy from the invisible bacteria, the unseen hidden sins of the heart. that you can interact with other Christians and they have no idea what's going on in your heart and behind closed doors. You see, we can so sear and numb our consciences that we don't just keep wearing them we'll actually fold them neatly and put them back in the drawer as if they belong with every other hard attitude and behavior that is clean and righteous. And pretty soon, as you mix everything in, everything is upside down because you have distanced yourselves from the very fundamentals of basic cleanliness. You have distanced yourself from God's Word. Dig deep. Find the filth and strip it off. But that's not the end of it. There's one more ingredient to bring us full circle and a proper reception of God's word. We've seen self-control, we've seen holiness, and the third is humility. Humility. James 21, the second part says, In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I want you to notice that I cut this sentence in half. So our last point is grammatically, a, our, last, our second point is grammatically a precursor to humbly receiving the word. We have to see this all together because it's connected. He says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word. This is how you receive the word in humility, dealing with the sin. It all goes together without actively repenting of sin and dealing with the moral wickedness and filth in your heart, you will not receive the word and you definitely will not receive it with humility. And we understand what humility is. It literally means mildness or gentleness. It's the same word elsewhere that is translated into the English as gentleness. Humility in our context today means to receive the word with submission, without pushing back, without frustration, without arrogance, anger, selfishness, or aggression. Just submit to it, accept it. The best definition we have, I believe, in the New Testament of humility is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. My favorite passage in all of Scripture, would you turn there with me? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. It not only gives us a practical definition of humility, but also gives us the supreme example of humility, our model to follow, our example to follow of perfect humility to the point of death despite innocence in Jesus Christ. Verses 3 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2 it says, Do nothing. Nothing, okay? Uh, doesn't say if you're in the mood, if things are going right, if people treat you well, if people are humble towards you. No, do nothing. From selfishness or empty conceit, there we have the enemy or the opposite of humility. Selfishness and arrogance. But, he continues, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Not as equals, as more important than yourselves. There are people we naturally consider more important than ourselves. Our parents, our spouse sometimes, our boss, politicians, whatever, depending on the context. Here, God is saying, consider everyone as more important than yourselves. You may be more important at your job than other people that you're to consider more important. That's not the point. On a spiritual level, you are to consider and treat other people as more important than yourselves. Verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Praise God. He doesn't say neglect yourself, starve yourself, sell everything you have to treat other people as more important than yourselves. You still look out for your own personal interests, but do not merely look out for yourself, he goes on, but also for the interests of others. Here's the example, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, that is voluntarily allowing in the Father's plan to have some of his characteristics and abilities of being God temporarily uh, separated. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Until Christ emptied himself and exemplified perfect humility for us in example and doing so for us, the Psalms tell us he never wearied or tired, slumbered or slept. And yet we have examples in the Gospels where Jesus was so physically exhausted that his disciples were terrified that the boat would turn over and they would drown, but Jesus needed to sleep. Never tempted by evil. Can't be tempted by evil as we saw a couple weeks ago. And yet, after being tempted by Satan himself, he didn't just walk out of the wilderness. All right, guys, ministry's begun. The angels, the Father had to send angels to minister to him because of his weakness in his human flesh. He had to eat. He had to use a diaper as a baby. He got thirsty. And after he ate and drank, he had to go relieve himself things that he never had to do or ever experience in eternity past, for us, he humbled himself, stepping out of heaven, becoming man for our sake. And he is the example of considering others as more important than yourselves, even if you are God. God considered us more important than himself and suffered physical human death. And though this passage speaks of our behavior toward others, this same attitude is what James is calling for in relation to accepting the Word of God. And when it comes to the Word of God, humility involves, as I've said, submission to it. It involves patiently accepting. And when you find that difficult to do, try again. Ask for help. Don't ask for other interpretations. Don't leave this church to go to a church where someone will tell you that you can do whatever you want. There's no such thing as sin. God loves you, period, and you can do whatever and go to heaven. Don't do that. Go back to the Word. Humbly submit to it. You see, there's no malice in humility. There's no attitude of self-assertiveness. There's no place for I'll do it, but I'm not going to like it. That's not humility. And that's definitely not submission. And the reason this is so vitally important is because we are not just talking about accepting facts. We're not just talking about embracing a literary work. It is about letting God's Word change you. It's about the heart as much as it is about the intellect. And if you truly want to change for the better, then humility before God's word is a must. And incidentally, it is humility that will make it easy to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, or not angry at all. This also explains why Jesus says the humble are those who will receive the kingdom of heaven in the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. And why gentleness or humility is a part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. In other words, humility is a non-negotiable aspect of the Christian faith. It is part of what defines who we are in Christ. And it is also why it is with humility that James calls us to, quote, receive the word implanted. Word here is, of course, the Word of God, and specifically the Gospel, which James says has been implanted in the believer, not at birth, but upon salvation and throughout sanctification. This is done not through study, but by the hand of God. And the word implanted that James used here speaks of planting a seed in the ground, and it is used by James to speak of God's Word being planted and then taking root in the heart of the believer. And this is really a a very encouraging statement because we don't need to go out and seek it. God has given it to us. We do not need to fight to remove the scales from our eyes. The Holy Spirit did that upon salvation. We don't need to work and be good enough to deserve it. Christ has finished that. The word is implanted. However, he goes on to tell us we do need to receive it. Well, if it's already implanted, what does it mean to receive it? It means we are to obey it. We are to act upon it. We are to accept it as for our lives, to let it influence every aspect of our being. You understand that spiritual growth is more than just owning a Bible, and it's even more than just reading the Word. It is receiving it with humility such that our spiritual lives are preserved and our spiritual lives are improved. Deprive yourself of the word, which can happen even when you're reading it and don't humbly receive it. Deprive yourself of the word and you will spiritually deteriorate. It doesn't mean, oh, as long as I read it every day. There's nothing mystical about touching it, praying over it. When I at least believe I first became a Christian, I was at a very weak church. I was never instructed to read the Bible. I didn't know what to do with this thing. King James Bible. Why do you give a 12-year-old a King James Bible? I'll never understand. But I had this Bible from the church, from VBS. I didn't know I was supposed to read it. I definitely didn't know I was supposed to memorize it. I didn't know that the words of life were in there. And so every night, I would kiss it. Yes, that's good, right? This <laughs> is a Protestant church, by the way. And this is what I just thought I should do. I also prayed out loud because the only people I ever heard praying were, of course, out loud. You know, the pastor up front has to pray out loud. Punky Brewster, when her dog died or whatever, on TV. And so I thought, you're supposed to pray out loud. No one ever said you can just pray in your heart. Those things didn't grow me. They didn't sanctify me you need to humbly receive it. And what I'm talking about is spiritual growth, repentance, holiness, not theological knowledge, not even apologetic prowess. Let the word change you. This is a manual for life. And so many, and I'll admit, so many within our circles the conservative, evangelical, John MacArthur circles, look at this book and see a baseball bat. It is a manual for living. It is for you not to memorize and smash other people and make them feel small. Humbly receive it. Don't arrogantly beat people with it. This isn't about being a learner. This is about being a follower. This is not about being a reader. This is about being a receiver. And just as we saw a couple of weeks ago that sin brings forth past, present, and future death, so the word implanted, James Wright, is able to save your souls past, present, and future as an unbeliever, you are saved by the word. As a believer, you are sanctified by the word. As a child of God, as the word has promised, you will one day be glorified in the presence of God when your salvation is complete. We understand salvation in the scriptures sometimes means the past completed act of justification declared righteous in the eyes of God when you became a Christian, when you prayed that prayer. But there are times where it's talking about the whole gamut The whole timeline of salvation, which for us, humanly speaking, started at justification, started in eternity past when God chose us, but for us, practically speaking, at justification, continues today in sanctification and will culminate one day in glorification. This is what James is talking about. The Word of God is working salvation in your life. Stick close to the Word and you will grow. You won't lose your salvation. But that's beside the point. The point is because we are saved, we want to grow, we want to be holy, we want to submit to the Word of God. Three ingredients for the proper reception of God's Word. Self-control, holiness, and humility. You say, Roger, those aren't all the same letter. That's the only reason I come to this church is because your points all start with the same letter. Fine. You really want... Alliteration, you can say self-control, sanctity, and submission. But what I like better is the fact that these three points have given you an acronym, which really sums up everything. Shh. Yeah, but you don't understand my... Shh. Listen. Listen. Well, you don't get my... Shh read. And if that doesn't work, shut up. <laughs> I've told you this before. I tell myself this. You know, we get that you start getting angry or starting doubting, you start you said, shut up and listen to God's word. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear Slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we even struggle with receiving the word because we have the word. We praise you, Father, for your goodness and goodness. And grace and revealing yourself as well as your plan of salvation through your word. Without your word, we would not know about Jesus Christ, we would not know about the cross, we would not know about how to honor and serve you. We would be like so many others who have created their own religion, trying to please an unknown God through impossible works. But instead, you have revealed yourself, and so, Lord, may we receive and accept and submit to not just the parts we like. Not just the broader concepts, but the difficult parts that call us to obedience and self sacrifice, humility. Help us with each other, but especially in front of your word and directed towards your word to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We need your help to do this, Lord. May we so appreciate and love you and your word and so desire holiness and hate sin that we pursue these things even if it makes us stand out even more as objects of persecution. But Lord, even in that, may we shine even brighter for your glory in Jesus' name.